Hello and welcome to London Live. It's Tuesday, February 19th, 2019. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. Mike is off this week. He will still be doing Knights games. He's just taking a well-deserved break from the show. He'll be back with you next week. I hope you had a good long weekend, assuming you were off yesterday. If you were not, hope you had a good regularly-sized weekend. I was off yesterday. Family Day, uh, still not the most popular of long weekends, uh, but I will take it. We are starting a short week with a big show for you today. We'll be talking about the SNC-Lavalin scandal in a few moments with political analyst Jason Leader. We'll be talking about the early results from London's Red Light Camera program, and we'll be talking about the Grand Theatre's funding request that's going before City Council. The funding request is you know, leading to a larger discussion about how the city will process requests for money from the Tourism Infrastructure Fund. That's in the first hour. In the second hour, we'll have a special Tuesday roundtable. The roundtable won't be topics of the day. I want to focus on topics we don't normally get time to discuss on air. These are topics I've wanted to do, but thought they're best in the roundtable format. So, for example, how much bearing should a politician's past have on their present circumstances? We live in an era of social media where people put everything online. It is bound to happen. There will be lots of politicians and embarrassing videos and pictures in the future for politicians. Should that disqualify them or not? And what should we make of people who were so squeaky clean They've never, ever done anything wrong. That is a little odd in itself, isn't it? We'll talk about that and more in the second hour of the program. Up first, the SNC-Lavalin scandal. On Family Day, Gerald Butts, Justin Trudeau's principal secretary and senior political advisor, resigned amid allegations that the prime minister's office tried to prevent the criminal prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. In a statement posted on Twitter, Butts denied accusations he or anyone else in the PMO improperly pressured former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould to help the Montreal engineering giant avoid prosecution on corruption and bribery charges related to contracts in Libya. Butts' resignation comes just days after the Prime Minister accepted the resignation of Wilson-Raybould as the Veteran Affairs Minister. The Tories and NDP and other cabinet ministers have called on Trudeau to waive solicitor-client privilege so she can speak about the case. Butts adds in the statement that the allegations distract from the vital work Trudeau and the PMO are doing. He states that it's his responsibility to defend his own reputation and that it's in the best interests of the government that he step away. Butts has acknowledged that Wilson-Raybould briefly raised the SNC-Lavalin case during a conversation with him in December. He says he advised her to speak with the clerk of the Privy Council. She has stated that she has retained her own legal counsel to advise her on which aspects of the case she can discuss publicly. Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer said Butts' resignation was the latest indication of a cover-up engineered by Trudeau. Butts has been long-time friends with Trudeau. They are very good friends since their days at McGill University in Montreal. He was instrumental in organizing his successful leadership bid in 2013 and was one of two key architects, along with Kitty Telford, who was Trudeau's chief of staff, of the Liberals' come-from-behind victory in 2015. Since then, he has been his closest and most trusted advisor. To talk about this, we're joined by Jason Leader, a senior political analyst at Enterprise Canada. Thanks for your time today. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Devin. I really appreciate it. Well, I mean, this is big news, not altogether surprising. Maybe in the timing, we haven't had a second shoe drop yet, but uh, we had like someone from the prime minister's office was going to have to leave. And even though Gerald Butts has resigned, that's certainly not the end of it. Yeah, I find, you know, it's funny. Funny is maybe the wrong word, but a lot of us thought that Jerry Butts would be, you know, whenever Trudeau left that that office, whether he left on his own or was defeated, Jerry would be there to turn out the lights, carry the suitcases, you know, sort of pick up the dry cleaning, all that kind of stuff. These guys are so tight. I think the fact that he, you know, sort of was thrown overboard so early, uh, obviously there's more to come. Obviously they expect Ms. Wilson-Raybould to uh, come out guns blazing. Obviously we, they expect her to uh, target Target Jerry, and obviously they wanted to sort of get out in front of that story. But I got to tell you, um, you know, this one is uh, going to get worse before it gets better, and I'm not sure that they're going to uh, have the same kind of or have the success they want. Get putting this behind them with this move. That's for sure. The relationship between uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, Gerald Butts is an interesting one. They they were friends long before uh, politics. Uh, and that's a different type of uh, friendship, I guess, in polit- political circles. Someone that uh, you knew pre-politician uh, in, for, yeah. the, for his desires. Yeah, they go back a long way. I mean, they're buddies from McGill. They're best friends. Um, you know, Butts helped uh, Trudeau uh, write the eulogy that he uh, that he gave at his father's funeral. It was so famous, you know, a couple of decades, you know, some time ago. And so these guys, these guys have grown up together. And they've gone on this political journey together. You know, they started back in 2012, 2013, organizing. And, uh, you know, that's the biggest impact here that I think people, um, we might not even see it all from the outside, but the, the effect that this is going to have on the PM's headspace is going to be profound. Yeah, he's literally lost his security blanket. And he's uh, not just another staffer, but someone who, uh, you know, had intense loyalty, uh, came up with all the big ideas, and was really sort of second in command of an Ottawa. So an unbelievable loss for the prime minister and uh, not the kind of thing you want going into an election year. So the one thing I wonder is, like, is this like, you know, when a manager gets kicked out of the game and he gets uh, in baseball and he goes down in the dugout and he's in a clubhouse and, you know, wink, wink, yeah. nudge, nudge, he's still giving some ideas here and there. I mean, obviously there's no yeah. official communication, but just given how close these two are, is Gerald Butts really gone or is that even just too dangerous to even toy with, you know, secretly? That's a great question, Devin. I, I, I don't think we know that yet. And I, the, one of the reasons I, I, why I, I think that's true is until Jody Wilson-Raybould speaks, I think it's not going to be it's not going to be possible for us to know exactly how far this scandal is going to go and how whether it's contained at all or whether it's uh, whether it's going to get worse. And and until that time, what what the PMO won't know and what the PM won't know is whether or not Jerry is radioactive or whether or not he can be welcomed back into the fold. The plan always was for Jerry to go work on the campaign early in the summer. Some are sort of joking that he's got a head start to that. (laughs) I don't think, obviously, this isn't good news for them. And depending on how far he's implicated and how deeply he has to sort of fight for his own reputation, that's going to tell the tale on whether or not it's going to be acceptable um, for him to be around. The problem that that, that they've got, though, Devin, is this guy was so high profile. He was the person on the other end of the phone talking to journalists, spinning them, telling them the Trudeau government story. That's that sort of function is gone for the next short while, for sure, and and maybe maybe through the campaign. Frankly, are you surprised that Trudeau praised uh, Butts in his statement yesterday? I mean, I know obviously they're friends. 
But I would have thought it would be better for him to use almost the same language for butts that he did for Jody Wilson, Raybould. Uh, I, I know he's falling on his sword here, but uh, if they're such good friends, I mean, it's the, this is a serious situation, and to be praising him when the other shoe hasn't dropped, I think could backfire on them. I think he used his head when he or his heart when he should have used his head there. I think he probably should have been a bit a bit more circumspect. And that's the that's the the thing that is coming up here, Devin. Right? I I honestly do believe that the PM and the PMO believe that they've done nothing wrong. Um, they believe that there was a you know. Uh, uh, sort of a difference of opinion between them and Ms. Wilson-Raybould on what happened here. The problem that they've got is they've spent the last five years running sort of a hashtag identity politics government, you know, hashtag feminism, hashtag believe women, hashtag because it's 2015, hashtag feminism. And, and the problem is they can't get into a he said, she said fight with her, which they're apparently willing to do over the next short while, um, and win that fight. It's impossible for a government that's sort of fancied itself and styled itself, this feminist uh, juggernaut, to win a he said, she said fight. And I think it's very dangerous for the prime minister to get into that kind of fight, but it looks like he's willing to do so. So for this controversy that's been bubbling along, what does this this resignation mean? This means probably, I mean, if, if people thought the worst had already happened, it's not even begun, really. Yeah, it looks to me like, you know, if you thought, if you thought we were sort of at the explosive bomb stage, we're at the kindling, sort of the newspaper and the kindling are in the fire. And, uh, you know, this thing, Jody Wilson-Raybould goes out and talks and says anything other than uh, uh, I wasn't pressured. The lid's going to blow right off this thing. The problem for the prime minister at that point is he's already lost his top guy. Um, you know, who do you fire then? Uh, and that's that's where that's where he's uh, you know he's really uh, playing with uh, fire here because um, at the, at some point the question is going to be asked of Justin Trudeau. This is you. This is your office. Obviously, executing your orders um, because you wanted to win in Quebec and you wanted to let this company off the hook. Um, you know, isn't this your problem? Isn't this your scandal? And and that's where we're going with this. That's where it's going to end up. Um, you know, he's going to have to do a little bit better than he's done for the last couple of weeks. This may sound odd, but one positive I do take away from this is the fact that it's, it is a big deal. Canadians are treating it as such. We look down the United States, there are dumpster fires everywhere. Trump is alleged to have done this yeah. very thing, barely seems to register, but it's registering here. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, we've become, the United States, the political uh, sort of polarization controversies. I mean, Trump, Trump does something this ridiculous, you know, uh, quite often. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, you know, you sort of can't get dug into one scandal before the next one starts. Here in Canada, you know, we don't have that same kind of kind of thing. We've got interesting politics. You know, we've got the Ford government. We've got the Trudeau government. They're both sort of legit celebrities. But for the most part, they run uh, governments that are not unreasonable or at least uh, are within the borders or the box of, of reasonability. Um, that's why this one is, is you know, Trudeau's... He hasn't had many many times when he's been in serious trouble. The India trip, I would say, and the, the private island vacation. This is one. This one is completely different, and they haven't handled it well so far. And uh, they've got to they've got to get their uh, their feet under them if they want to fight this back. It'll be interesting to see how this unfolds, uh, Jason. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Hey, Devin. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it very much. That's Jason Leader, a political analyst at Enterprise Canada. We need to pause. When we come back, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. The federal election is still months away, but in many ways, the campaign has already begun. You could argue it began with the SNC-Lavalin controversy, but given the world we live in right now, in social media, the fight for hearts and minds has been on for a while. It is with that in mind, I shared the study from Nanos Research. Six in ten Canadians surveyed said they are expecting Facebook to have a negative or somewhat negative impact on the next federal election. Sounds about right. Uh, 25% said they think Facebook will have a negative impact. 36% said it will have a somewhat negative impact on the next election. 23% said the impact will be average. 5% said it will be a positive impact. And just 2% said the social media platform will have a positive impact on the next campaign. 9% were unsure. Are Canadians right to be worried? Taylor Owen is an assistant professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. He's also the holder of the Beaverbrook Chair in Media Ethics and Communications. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Well, I thought this survey looking at Canadians and their concern for the impact of Facebook negatively on the next federal election uh, was interesting. Uh, Majority are worried about the impact Facebook's going to have. Are Canadians right to be worried? Yeah, I, I, I personally think they are, and I think this is a sign that um, some of the conversations that we're seeing both in the research community and then ultimately in the journalistic community are starting to break through to the wider public, that there is something concerning about the way large technology companies are shaping the information we receive in an election, and outside of an election, frankly. Um, but an election puts a poignancy on it where... Um, the vulnerability becomes particularly clear. If Canadians are worried about the impact of uh, Facebook in particular, could that concern negate any possible issues, or is that a little bit wishful thinking because it's a little bit bigger than that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's a a real question towards how much individuals can do in response to this sort of problem. Um, and I think you see a lot of calls, example, for example, for greater digital literacy, right? So we, so citizens need to be more aware of what is real and what is not real and how they're being manipulated potentially online. Um, and I think those are, those are good things to do, citizens being aware that when they go on Facebook, the way that they receive information is is highly manipulative. Um, people are purchasing access to their attention. And I think people being aware of that and being a little bit more skeptical when they go on these platforms and see news about an election or about an issue in an election they care about is, is, is really important. But I think there are limits to that, and there, there are limits to what individuals can do because ultimately this problem is, is bigger and more structural. It is about how the platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, like Twitter actually function. And until we get at the mechanics of that, um, I think we're, we're sort of, um, we're, we're relatively superficially engaging with the problem. Uh, as it just so happens, I was listening to a podcast the other day where uh, Jack Dorsey was uh, being interviewed and they were talking about mm-hmm. a lot of the very different issues that uh, Twitter is facing right now. Yeah. One of the things he said in that is, you know, some of, like, some of the solutions people are wanting aren't just going to happen, you know, tomorrow. These things take time. 
And so I wonder, as we have, you know, a federal government concerned about this, we have Facebook that has said it's concerned about this. To what degree that is truthful, I don't know. We've got these social media platforms that are aware of this, but the solutions aren't as, as though it's, you know, you, you just try something different immediately and it works. These take time. So I wonder just the time element of all of this in terms, in relation to the to the election, even if there's a genuine yeah. desire to fix something, can we do it in time? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a couple few aspects of that. I mean, one is um, the incentive to to deal with the problem, right? And I think these very large, very wealthy technology companies can do things very quickly when they're incentivized to do so. Um, part of the challenge we face here, though, is even in spite of this increased public scrutiny and government scrutiny, um, the financial incentives are, are for them to do less, right? Or for platforms to do as little as possible because their very financial model depends on the type of ad targeting, for example, in the case of Facebook or um, automated account and virality in the case of an engagement in the case of Twitter, um, their, their, their financial model depends on that kind of behavior, and part of that behavior is what we find problematic in an election. So, yes, they could move quickly, but the financial incentives may or may not be aligned with, with moving quickly. That, that being said, um, that Dorsey's right, and he's been doing a lot of conversations about this lately, um, that these are really wicked problems. So there is no easy tech fix to these problems that he can just implement. Because we are getting into areas of free speech, of um, what is um, an authentic account on these platforms, um, and of the the differences in different approaches to these spaces in different countries around the world. And these are fundamentally global platforms. So he's right, it's a wicked problem. I'm just not sure they are incentivized enough to take it as seriously as they should be. I also uh, wonder about Canadians. Uh, the, the study says we recognize the negative impact and we're concerned about the negative impact Facebook mm. could have. But I wonder mm. if, are, are we changing our behaviors on these platforms or are we just, is this one of those, because I see a lot of studies and people talk about driving yeah. and everyone else is the bad driver, but I'm okay. Everyone else is the bad pet <laughs> yeah. owner, but I'm okay. And so on and so on. And so I wonder, because yeah. in Canada, we, we don't have a Donald Trump who's running. So the, you know, if Justin Trudeau, Andrew Scheer, Jagmeet Singh becomes the next prime minister, we can reasonably expect the country is not going to collapse. I wonder if people just <laughs> view it slightly differently. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that... Um certain more radical political elements of elections in other countries have catalyzed this debate um, in a way that probably won't happen here in the same way. Um, I do think people are, are slowly changing their behavior, though, and that poll is actually a really important signpost in that evolution. I mean, people, if you had asked that same thing two years ago, um, it would have been significantly lower. Um, people worried about these platforms. These were up until very recently seen as universal democratic goods, right? It was a good thing for us to be on Facebook discussing our election. Um, now there's, there's, a, there's a much more skepticism, and that skepticism comes from just a repeated failure of these platforms to take these issues seriously. Um, I think now they actually are 
um, in some important ways, but it took them a long time to get there. And uh, so now the question is, well, are they going to implement changes that are serious, um, or are people going to step away from these platforms in meaningful ways? And and I'm not sure we know the answer to that yet. Yeah, and I guess maybe one example of that, you know, what we as users are, you know, changing the way we view some of this information is I remember a lot, you know, especially go back to 2013 with the Boston bombing and you have these active shooter situations. Lots of information gets pumped out on especially something like Twitter. People believe the firsthand account, which is traditionally incorrect or wrong in some sense. And now people, I think, are a bit more cautious specifically with regards to information on Twitter during ongoing situations. And maybe that sort of mindset will, you know, be uh, present with uh, Facebook and our election this this fall. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, one of the one of the challenges with these platforms is they incentivize recency and engagement. And um after a they're in the middle of a breaking news event, um usually the most reliable things are not the things that are both most provocative and the quickest to publish. Um so there you have a clear case where the structure of how information flows on these platforms is disconnected from the social good. And and I think the more citizens become aware of that, then the more skeptically they can look at content um, in particular moments, um, like in a breaking news event or like in an election. Um, but that requires a lot of um, a lot more skepticism and a lot more reporting and a lot more public engagement around how these uh, how these platforms function. It'll be interesting to watch. I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. That's Taylor Owen from McGill University. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on London Live. Mike will be back with you next week. I want to talk about red light cameras. Have you uh, been ticketed by one of the 10 we have in the city? A report going before the Civic Works Committee tomorrow says the red light cameras brought in nearly $1 million last year. The total profit was $475,000 after all expenses were paid. Now, before you go into a, a rant about this being a tax grab, it appears the cameras are doing their job, which is to reduce collisions. The report suggests the cameras have helped reduce collisions with injuries or death by one-third. Right-angle collisions at intersections citywide have dropped by 26%. Crashes involving injury or death are down 34%. Uh, Graham Larkin is the executive director of Vision Zero Canada. They're a group that advocates for the elimination of harm to any road users. This includes driving drivers, passengers, pedestrians, and cyclists. He joins us now. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Devin. The uh, the conversation before London had red light cameras, I thought, was an interesting one. It's the typical type of conversation when uh, they are involved. Uh, so far, these are early results, so I don't want to get into the results too much, but they do seem to be pretty positive. Um, just on red light cameras in general, what are your thoughts on them as a, a, a tool to improve road safety? Well, they're a great deterrent. Um, and in a way, it's quite simple and, and quite predictable uh, insofar as if someone runs a red light and gets a hefty fine, which they do in London, it's, uh, it's $325 plus three demerit points. Uh, what happens is they really think twice about doing it again, and the numbers go down. That happens 
everywhere, and my understanding is that that's, uh, that's what's happening in London. One of the interesting things, too, was just on that point, like that we've had some re- we've had reductions in terms of some right angle crashes and intersections, uh, crashes involving injury or death, both down uh, pretty significantly. But it's not just at those locations where the cameras are. It's it's citywide. So it, it seems as though this is early on into what is a five year uh uh, span here, so the numbers aren't final, final, but it seems early on this has brought about some change in habits uh, for some drivers in London. Yeah, which is remarkable because, uh, again, not surprising, uh, but it does point to this being very, very effective, a very uh, good sort of bang for buck in a way that even pays for itself. Uh, and I think. Um, yeah, that is that is what happens is is that people change their habits in general, which is a really really hard to, thing to get get people to do. I'm not sure how you do it uh, in London. I don't know the details of whether the uh, you know there's signs announcing that there's a red light camera here or whatever. It's almost better if there aren't, but if people know they're out there and uh, hey, they can't run any of the red lights. So that's that's just very encouraging, and it sounds to me uh, like maybe that's a reason to to have more of them. I, I have read, um, you know, a, a staff report on this. One thing they were saying is, well, this is, you know, a positive. They're also saying this is part of a collection of initiatives London has done. Uh, London is a community that works towards, you know, uh, a Vision Zero. Obviously, you're with Vision Zero Canada in terms of a lot of different initiatives London's trying to do. We've had some uh, speed reduction in school zones. A lot of different things that collectively, red light cameras alone uh, don't solve this problem. But they are part of a solution. That's exactly right. Because what we need to do is is think here about safe systems, and that means looking at things in a very, very, you know, one. There's no silver bullet. No single thing alone is going to do it. Speed is always a factor. So it's great to see, um, you know, people like uh, Josh Morgan and Jesse Helm are really pushing on the, on that safe schools push that you mentioned. Uh, that's great to get that. That's cr- critical. Uh, to get the, uh, the the speeds down to uh, a place where there's, uh, you know, to put it in physics, well, there's like less blunt impact, like if you get hit by a car, but there's also a lot more reaction time so that fewer kids get hit and uh, more of them are able to get uh, get safely to school. So as I say, speed is always a factor, but you have to have many, many components. Uh, that's one of the things that's interesting in a way about, about uh, you know, road safety when you're really doing it evidence-based is you have to work on many, many fronts at once. And most of those, uh, you know, well, you know, everything from, um, from speed control to things like uh, not only red light cameras, but I would also say speeding cameras are, are, are effective for the same reasons. Uh, heavy vehicle regulation, something people don't uh, think about enough, but things like, like uh, side guards and direct vision standards for, uh, for, 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 for trucks, and then, um, you know, infrastructure changes that can calm the traffic. So a lot of these things, you know, really make uh, for kind of a win-win situation where you're getting closer to a place like, like one of my favorite examples, the Netherlands, which is where they have the happiest drivers in the world, happiest kids in the world. I've, I've, I can, you know, I won't bore you with the details, but I have the data to prove that. And, uh, and, it's, and it's super, super safe and, and, and lots of active transit. And that means fewer cars on the road, for one thing, because it's, you know, there's other ways to get about. What do you think is the difference between somewhere like the Netherlands and here where 
Uh, they uh, have been doing this for a longer. They've come around to the idea of this, where maybe uh, you know municipalities in Ontario are starting to come around on this, uh, treating this a bit differently than they did in the past. What has been some of that barrier for some of these different methods that maybe other parts of the world have already adopted? Well, it's it's a long story, and it really began in the Netherlands with a campaign uh, called. Stop the Kindermord, which is which means stop the child murder, uh, which happened in uh, really around starting around 1972. Uh, it was a journalist whose, whose kid got killed, and he kind of started this campaign. They really, really stepped up their game, and what they did was they basically effectively put the onus for child safety not on the road user, like these poor kids who are getting killed, but on the, on the state, on, this, on the system. And that could mean the municipality, that could mean the province, that could, you know, in Canadian terms, or that could mean uh, uh, the feds. But I, but I think a lot of this stuff has to happen on a very, very local level. But, it, but it's almost a paradigm shift. The idea, and that's really what real Vision Zero is, the real safe systems mentality, is when uh, you stop, you know, obviously, you know, we all have to keep our heads about us and have some responsibility, but the bulk of the responsibility really has to be on the state for designing fail-safe systems, wherein uh, if someone does make a mistake, nobody gets uh, seriously injured or, 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 you know, killed. Just to return to where we began, are, are you surprised at all by this began in 2017 in London with these red light cameras? We have 10 of them. They've been slowly uh, putting them into the community. The, the 10th one actually just started up in uh, late December of last year. So it's been a kind of a slow process. This began in 2017. To see some of the results we're seeing already early on, are you surprised by that? Or is that financial incentive, that $320 fine, is that enough to get people to wake up and... Uh, and take notice about uh, some of their driving habits, do you think? Well, it's clearly working. It's clearly getting people's attention. It sounds like it looks like you already, the numbers are already coming in, and, and this egregious act of, of, of running a red light is, um, is, is happening less, and that's just a cause for celebration for everyone. Uh, so, no, it's, it's, it's not surprising. Um, and, and I just think, you know, I mean, something we haven't really talked about is, is how... Uh, how much better it is for for that to be done by a camera than to be done by a cop. You know, police have better things to do. Uh, it's not prone to bias, uh, and and and, and it, to have a camera do it, and it's not as expensive. I mean, there's a human thing there, right? Like people have to look at the evidence of the camera and grab the license plate and all that stuff. Uh, but it's far more uh, far more objective and far more efficient. So it's not surprising, uh, and it's also a way to to in a very very effectively uh, you know generate uh, some revenue that can be put into safety. So it, it just seems like like an all-around win. Graham, I certainly appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Devin. Anytime. That's Graham Larkin, Executive Director of Vision Zero Canada. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. This is Devin Peacock in on London Live. Mike Stubbs is off this week. London's new Tourism Infrastructure Fund is certainly proving to be popular. Came into effect last year. It has already sparked a fair number of funding requests. 
The way the hotel tax is set up, half goes to the city, half goes to Tourism London. The latest request, which is also the largest to date, comes uh, from the Grand Theatre. They're asking for $2 million to assist with an $8 million planned renovation. They're also going to be asking for money from the federal government and from private donations. Uh, The Grand wants the money to help cover upgrades to their sound system, lighting and seating. They would also like to modernize their lobby and box office, and they want to replace four of their seven roofs. The issue will be discussed at the Corporate Services Committee today. It actually began about an hour ago at City Hall. Josh Morgan is the chair of the committee. I talked to him about this earlier today. Here is that conversation. I wish I was as popular as the Tourism Infrastructure Fund, but it certainly uh, seems to be uh, something that uh, the community is finding some value in and maybe an opportunity in. Uh, for some funding, this is, uh, I guess, good, but also it creates uh, an interesting, uh, not a problem, but an interesting situation for City Council with uh, just coming up with a procedure to deal with a request like this uh, request from the Grand Theatre. Yeah, I don't think there's too many, you know, government sources of financing that have uh, shortages of requests. So I'm, I'm not surprised that there are a number coming in. And um, frankly, the committee's job is to uh, to assess the appropriateness of the co- the requests and then identify whether or not it's uh, supportable. And then the appropriate sources of financing, of which the municipal accommodation tax is one option. So I, I, will, I want to start by just focusing on the Grand Theatre request first, and we'll kind of get into the larger conversation, which I think is an interesting one. With, re- with regards to the Grand Theatre request, they have asked for this uh, $2 million. They are looking for $8 million total for a uh, planned renovation. City staff has recommended this be put off uh, for about a year uh, just so uh, some money can accrue within this fund, but also... Uh, the city can come up with a procedure to deal with these types of uh, rec- uh, requests. Uh, what is your thoughts on this request from the Grand Theatre? Sure, let me just comment on a couple of things. It is a $2 million ask for an $8 million project. Um, the other ways that that breaks down is they have lined up $2 million of uh, private donations, uh, and then they'll be asking for um, a federal grant, uh, I believe it's a cultural grant, of uh, $4 million. And, and both of those other asks are dependent upon matching funding um, from the local level of government. And so that's why they brought the request before us today. I will say our staff uh, did not make a specific recommendation on this request. They brought it forward. And their request to um, to delay is not related to this. They, they certainly will allow us and suggest we should make a decision on this. But subsequently to that, we should pause any other um, allocations from this particular fund until we get the the procedures. So uh, I think their expectation is that we do deal with the grant, uh, the grand ask in some way. And and the timeliness of that ask is they need to know the commitment from the municipality to line up the other levels of governments and the private donor money, um, although they don't need the money until 2020. I won't put the card before. I mean, it's not necessarily, even though the request is $2 million, doesn't necessarily mean it's $2 million. As you say, there's still for 2020, but even then, it's not like $2 million right off the go. Not necessarily. I mean, that's a question that I would have for the presentation is is how, uh, you know, when do you need the money and over what time frame? That's usually good for us to know, particularly if we have uh, sources of financing like the municipal accommodation tax where money flows in 
um, spreading out, you know, the, the, the asks on that over uh, multiple years allows that to maintain a, a healthy balance. Uh, I will say staff identified other appropriate sources of financing as the Economic Development Reserve Fund or the Community Investment Reserve Fund. And so there are a couple of options for the community con- to consider should they want to um, fund this request. And there's also the possibility to divide it across funding sources, um, Given the um, you know given the answers of uh, to the questions that we ask and the appropriateness of the request, but I think first and foremost there's going to be questions about the nature of the ask and the money in general, um, and then subsequently we'll probably have a discussion about the source of financing on it. This probably would apply for uh, a couple of different funds that the city has. Maybe the tourism infrastructure fund would be one of them. It would seem to fit with the overall general principle of the purpose of the fund, but that would obviously be uh, part of the larger conversation of uh, a procedure for these types of requests. But uh, it does uh, seem like something that you could probably argue would be a benefit to the community, but the devil's always in the details. Yeah, for sure. And the Tourism Infrastructure Reserve Fund, uh, we have a bylaw that outlines the broad-based parameters under which uh, the funds uh, funding to from it is appropriate. And it certainly would include things like this permanent capital, uh, which is related to tourism, uh, that is going to have a long impact on the community. And, and even in the uh, the grants ask they they identify the percentage of of those who use their um, uh, facility and who who visit the grant as coming from out of town and their desire to be a cultural center. So there there is a tourism aspect to this, which is why um, the municipal accommodation tax fund is is one of the appropriate sources to consider. But like you said at the intro here, there are a lot of people looking at this fund, and what we have to do is be very cautious in the way that we we allocate these funds to ensure that we're not missing opportunities down the road. And so you see in the report, uh, and this is a discussion we had at committee um, a couple weeks ago, uh, should we be pausing allocations from this fund until we get uh, those parameters around which, you know, we would we would allocate? And so what are we talking about when we say that? We're talking about things like, um, you know, should we, what, what's the application process? Like what information do we want to get from applicants to even consider uh, funding from this fund? Should there be multiple streams? Are we going to do annual funding, multi-year funding, or just a singular stream? And what portion of the fund do we want to to keep uh, as protected in case we have large multi-year projects that we want to fund out of that? And what portion do we want to to kind of release every year for, for the applications that come forward? Those are decisions that we have not made yet on this fund, um, but we will be contemplating when that staff report comes back uh, in the second quarter of 2019. That's Josh Morgan, Ward 7 Councillor and Chair of the Corporate Services Committee. We need to pause. When we return, we'll have more of London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. There is just enough time to set up the second hour of London Live. We'll be doing a special roundtable. I want to talk about some issues that have not been discussed on the air in the city that I think are interesting. These are issues that I was considering different ways to tackle. Ultimately, wanted to go the roundtable route. I mentioned this earlier, but one of the topics we'll be talking about is how much bearing a politician's past should have on their present circumstances. We are in a social media world. People are putting everything online. It's going to happen in the future. It's already happened. But what about people who put videos, pictures, embarrassing anything online? It'll surface. Does that disqualify them or not? And 
one of the people who are so focused on being a politician, they are inauthentic. Is that a better politician or a worse politician? Miriam Hamu, Ali Chabar, and Nathan Carranza will be by for the Tuesday Roundtable. That and more are coming up in the second hour of the program. You're listening to London Live. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. Welcome back to the uh, second hour of London Live. Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs today. Uh, Mike will be back on uh, Monday. He's actually taking the entire week off, so you and I are stuck together for the entire <laughs> week. I am uh, going to do a, as I was just saying uh, last hour, I'm going to do a special roundtable today, not talking about issues of the day. There's certainly a lot to talk about. We could today, but I wanted to take the roundtable in a different direction just because there are different topics that come up that interest me, I think interest you, the listener, but we don't always have a chance to talk about. Now I could, do I talk to, you know, some expert about this or that, or do I just compile a, a group of people in a room, we chat about it, and I always like the roundtable format, and so... Uh, by golly, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I guess what you're in charge. So I'm that's in what we're charge. Doing. Uh, there's like our normal program director is away this week, so I my my power is coalescing. Oh. So you're driving the bus. Oh. Eh? So uh, <laughs> we got we got some coup going on right yeah, now, guys. Coup. Buckle up, kids. Peacock's at the helm. Uh, yeah. I checked with the guy in charge, and I said yes. So <laughs> here we are. We are joined in studio by Ali Chabar, Miriam Hamu, and uh, Nathan Crancy. Thanks for coming in, guys. No How are you? Thank uh, you I want to start by talking because I was for one of the topics we're go- we were talking about earlier today. Kind of fits with one of the topics we w- want to talk about is talking to Taylor Owen. He's a professor at McGill about uh, Canadians just being a little uneasy about Facebook and the Im- the impact it's going to have on the next federal election. I think it's uh, a majority of Canadians think it's going to have a negative impact. Just with the idea of the internet today, we've got uh, Russian interference that's all over the place, typically in the United States. But you know, there's information that shows uh, Twitter trolls. Twitter trolls have you know really had impacted debates in this country on immigrants and pipelines. And I just kind of wonder, uh, like. Are we kind of screwed with this sort of stuff just because, (laughs) on the one hand, Canadians are aware of, you know, the negative impacts of social media and Facebook, maybe not a reliable source of information. But on the flip side, it still seems to drive those conversations away from where we would want them to go. I literally have a conversation with my children about social media once a week. Like, like, sit them down. This happened. Um, this is what's, what's going on. I want you guys to be aware of this and talk to me if you have any questions, you know, whether it's, you know, um, people contacting them on Roblox or Fortnite or whatever platform they're playing or, um, or just like there was one thing that happened a couple of days ago about, um, a girl being told to kill herself. It was pervasive all over these mediums. And then she kept on having thoughts of killing herself. And of course, she's only eight years old. And so I talked to my children about it. And I said, you know, if you have any questions, if anybody ever says anything to you about this or online or you see it or you hear it or whatever, just come talk to me. And I think that needs to be something that's um, going on all the time about all the different platforms, not just with children, but like as adults. And as adults, we should be constantly checking what we're reading, what we're, you know, checking the sources. And, and of course, people that are 
you know, more in tune with what's going on on social media that are aware of, of you know, the Russian influences. And, and another thing that they're impacting is the vaccine conversation. And I think Nathan and I talked about that yep. last week. Um, but just to constantly have these conversations with people around you. Did you know this was real? Did you know this wasn't real? Check Snopes. Check other sources. Make sure that everything is sourced from a from a proper place. Um, because Rush, because the Russians or whoever, the Chinese, whoever it is that's out there trying to muddle things up is going to try to do it on every issue, any issue, just to put doubt in your mind. Because it's just it's just it goes along with their narrative. Let's let's put these huge doubts about democracy out there. Right. So let's put these huge things about vac like doubts about vaccines, doubts about, you know, your leaders. Um, well, there's two sides to every issue. And what are those two sides? Right. And so it's, it's like. It's like Trump going out there saying, well, I know some very good people on both sides. Well, no, he's a Nazi sympathizer. There are really no good people on the other side. So it's and and for vaccines. No, you have to get vaccinated. There's not another side to this. There's either you die, kill other people or create a big, huge pandemic in the world or you get vaccinated. So so these are kind of the conversations we need to have. So if I can build on that, this is something we certainly need to have a serious discussion on this topic. It truly is an existential threat to our democracy and it 100%. requires our attention. Um, in our democratic system, politics is simply a reflection of the beliefs and values of the people. When we look at our options at the ballot box, we decide who to vote for based on the person who most closely shares our values and will lead in accordance to those values. Uh, if you can change somebody's values, you can change who they want to vote for and their beliefs. Successful politicians are those that will evolve to best reflect the values of the people they wish to represent. So if you're looking to disrupt our democracy, there's obviously many ways to do it. You can go straight to the politicians and help the ones who are in your best interest, or you can try and change the values of the people who vote for them. Uh, in the age of social media, to your point, Miriam, it has never been easier to persuade people to believe what you want them to believe. Exactly. All you need is a basic understanding of three things. What people believe now, and that's based on demographics and, you know, personality, personality traits, things like that. Uh, a basic understanding of social media, whether it's Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, anything, and really just a little bit of money. It doesn't take much. Um, whether it's malicious foreign actors, to your point, Miriam, Ch China, Russia, Iran, you know, the Whoever. leadership of these companies or yeah. countries or lonely bad actors, their strategy is to, uh, in other words, pick at every scab yes. in our own country. Create doubt. And they don't create these wounds. They simply even, you know, they don't even side with one group or another. They simply help amplify the most divisive and controversial issues that we that people have within our borders, whether it's anti-vaccination, right? But they actually go to they they actually take an issue which is you know pretty well documented that exactly. it works, and then they pick apart the left side I mean, and the right, right. side. We they go at both of them exactly. And we can get into the specifics of how it's done, but the fact is we need to have a serious discussion about it, or else we risk surrendering our democracy to these you know bad actors which pretty much is happening in the US I'm sorry to say but it's almost to that point and it's, it's happening we're, here too we're at, we're point. at like a critical point right now in democracy because of this so are we, are we like on a collision course to be as divided as i would say the united states is so we're screwed <laughs> <laughs> Going back to your original question it's like are you screwed or really screwed uh how screwed uh, are we yeah we're, we're pretty screwed uh I, I think it's a combination of what uh, Miriam and Nathan were saying and, and, and part of what you were saying in the sense that it's this uh, – the internet, social media, it's this double-edged sword, right? 
And it's about our ability to discern and analyze the information. And when you look at other things we were kind of touched upon here, not just political analysis or discourse, but if you look at it in, in the context or through the lens of the vax vaccination debate, right? So a little bit of information can have a lot, like a lot of damage, a lot of impact. And so uh, you can see, I mean, I don't think we objectively can say that Trump was elected solely or even you know, uh, uh, by it's a large part, factors. it's one of yeah. many factors, yeah, uh, of the, yeah. potentially, yeah. Uh, right? But it's it's really more a reflection of what Nathan was talking about and our our ability or inability to um, discern real, valid, evidence based information as opposed to kind of that that propaganda, uh, the fake stuff that's out there, right? And so. I don't know. I, I I don't have a lot of faith. Uh, so I'm I partially said we're screwed in jest, but not really fully uh, in jest. I, I do think we have uh, an inability com- as compared to years past to kind of cut through the BS and and get to the uh, to the real stuff. So one of the problems I think facing us is, and I, I'm gonna kind of make this a little bit of a joke, but I'm being serious. Is it's our animal brains. Mm-hmm. It's so like we're kind of programmed for this. Like I was watching a show a while ago. And they were basically taking a picture. And it was like a, it was in the United States, but it, it would apply here. Was, they were taking a picture of two people running for office, and they're saying, "Who do you think won the election?" And people generally got it right just based on looking at, at the two people and who right. generally is kind of more attractive. And so, like, so if I'm running for you know for city council or something like that, and I, to they to take it to the extreme, and I got this big wart, and there's a hair coming out of my that wart. Generally, just even looking at me, forgetting politics and anything, people are probably not going to vote for me just based on these instant primal like decisions we make about people well, it's and things. It's visceral. And so yeah. we can try and, you know, better, you know, disseminate some of the information that come we see online on social media networks. But I think it's 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 hard to reprogram our brains with that initial, and so that that first impression is so important. And if that first impression comes from a source that is fake and incorrect, then it's just hard to get beyond that because our so much of who we are, we don't want to be wrong. We don't want to look stupid. We don't want to be made fun of. And so, if I hit you with you know a bunch of facts or whatever about why vaccination is a good example why you know you're wrong on this people just dig in just because no i'm not i don't want to be wrong but it, you know what i i will say it doesn't just have to be you know fake news versus real news it, it like in you know it's funny but the, it's the even... real fake news it, it it it's not just you know on on the topic of vaccinations there's one side that is is simply <laughs> founded in evidence and there's one side that's just not it's just wrong but there's also topics that are as divisive and as dangerous to our democracy, that both sides are really do have points. And to the point that you brought up at the beginning, for example, pipelines. There are people on one mm-hmm. side that say, don't build another pipeline. I value climate change over something else. That is my value. So therefore, my belief is that we should not, you know, uh, uh, go down that path. And there's other people on the other side, like me, who say, I do value climate change, but I also value economic development. I think that's the best way to have that impact on the world. But both people in those instances, Russia or China or Iran or Saudi Arabia or whoever the actor is, didn't create those divisions. They're simply amplifying the most divisive issues so that within our own borders, we have those conflicts and it becomes 
Uh, you know, that's a policy war. We also have the culture wars. Ali, I remember being on the radio with you here. I forget who else it was with. But we got in a big discussion. It was really good about, um, it was back when Kaepernick was uh, kneeling mm. for, the, for the flag. Mm-hmm. That is a cultural yeah. war issue. And it was a, a big deal at the time. But it wasn't as big a deal as perhaps it, it should have been. But when both sides get amplified and the most divisive aspects of both sides get amplified, these divisions, you, you don't trust the other side as much. And you enter these conversations with um, preconceived notions and, and you don't trust your fellow man or woman and, and, and you know, it, it's one small step at a time. There's, so, but this is happening in London though. Like, I mean, even just with this fluoride discussion where you have, where you have people that believe in the science and public health and whatnot, and then you have one article or two articles that have, you know, pulled their fluoride out of their water or whatever it is. And it's, and it's dividing people. And people that I actually, actually, no, I'm not going to, you know, people that I have respect for are pro taking the fluoride out of water. And I'm like, wait a second, what happened here? Now, I think I'm mature enough to say, you know what, that person's got a difference of opinion with me and I'm not going to, you know, I'll just be like, okay, I respect your opinion, whatever. Let's just move on. But there are people that won't do that. Go. So one of the byproducts of it is with the easy access to information, because we're, we're living in a time an age and time where if you go back even 20 years ago, just the instant access to mm-hmm. information, what's happening here is I, I read this really interesting article one time called uh, the death of the expert. And it was talking about how and I'm, I'm a lawyer, so I'll, I'll use that as an example, but how somebody I can, I went to school, I studied, I got a degree, I got called yeah. to the bar, wrote, you, you know, got 10, I, 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 hours I, I, in there. right. right. Yeah. And somebody can in their mind refute my legal opinion based on a, 30-second Google, uh, you know, cursory review of Google. Well, uh, my neighbor was in a car accident and he got awarded $400,000 in damages. Well, what else do you know about it? Well, I don't, I know that. Well, what about the factors? What about, and, you know, so it's the same thing where you go on WebMD before you go see a doctor and it's, well, you know, the symptoms are, I, I have this, well, it could be a brain tumor, it could be a urinary tract infection, right? And then, uh, uh, and so what's happening here is, uh, I think one of the, one of the kind of uh, unfortunate, I mean, there's so much great that comes from instant access to information, but one of the negative byproducts is that people, um, uh, have a little bit of information. So whether it's fluoride, whether it's vaccinations, whether it's kind of these things that are, I mean, pipelines is more, I think you're right in the sense it's a subjective thing. Yeah. There's objective it's elements to it, but it's, but there's uh, well, subjective. Immigration is another one. Immigration, you know. right? But you have these people who have a little bit of information and they think that that emboldens them, that that gives them the requisite authority to comment on things um, intelligibly. And when reality, you're not in any, I am not in any position whatsoever to render any medical opinion on anything or provide an engineer's opinion or provide anything. And yet I'll weigh in on something uh, and say, well, you know what, based on my understanding, you know, the, the diagnosis, is, I don't have the ability to do that. And yet there's too many people in our society that think that it's that old saying, you're, you're entitled to your own opinions. You're not entitled to your own facts. Well, that line has become blurred. So when we're talking about it in the context of politics and everybody, right? I mean, it's a byproduct of our our democracy, right? You're entitled to weigh in and and provide an opinion. But just because you provide an opinion doesn't mean it's the right opinion. We need to take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of our uh, special Tuesday roundtable. This is uh, London Live and Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL.
Devin Peacock in for uh, Mike Stubbs today, uh, joined by Nathan Crancy, Miriam Hamu, and Ali Chabar talking about, uh, it's a different kind of roundtable, not issues of uh, the day, just uh, interesting little things. Uh, we don't have a ton of time before the bottom of the hour news. I want to get into something a little bit then, uh, something I think is really interesting. Not that there's not anything that's interesting, but I think uh, this is a bit better suited for a bit of a shorter conversation. Uh, Jeff Bezos uh called out the National Enquirer for attempting to blackmail him. He has since not provided a whole bunch of tru- uh, proof necessarily about um, what he was saying. But that aside, uh, he was praised quite a bit for this, stood up to the National Enquirer, which we can quite confidently say is uh, not a reputable uh, media organization. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, but Jeff Bezos is also a billionaire. Yes. He has lots of resources. He has lots of publicists. I mean, on the one, I, I commend him for calling someone out on this, but I wonder if more people do were to do that. Like, if if on a more in a, in a London level, some say someone tries to, I do something, I'm texting with my mistress, and I get caught up in a similar type of thing, yeah. and there's a there's a smutty magazine in London that's going to out me or something like right. that. And I and I do something. Do people look at me differently? Should like should people be less judgmental for this kind of stuff? Because it's easy to be high and mighty uh, most of the times, but I think we all kind of have the have these little foibles. I think the and we're going to talk about social media and and uh, you know society a little bit later. But when we're talking about this, we're talking about blackmail, and we're mm-hmm. talking about the gray areas of blackmail. I'm not the lawyer in the room. I'll defer to you, Ali, mm-hmm. but. We're in an age where we are incentivizing this kind of blackmail culture. Oh, look, this new person has come to the top. Give us the goods. We will broadcast this. We'll make some money off it. You know, we'll put it on Twitter and then it's just gone. Um, you know, the the, the the legalities of it, I'll, I'll defer to, to an expert here, but but this is, you know, Jeff Bezos is the, the richest man in the world. It's different for him to have this kind of power, write an op-ed on some, you know, on medium.com. And, uh, you know, fight back. It's not so easy for any of us in this room or any of us, you know, driving, listening to this in your car at home. So, or uh, in your car, but, um, it's, it's, it's encouraging to see somebody doing it and perhaps it will lead to a bit of an enlightenment uh, for the rest of us. I think it, it's encouraging, but the public's reaction and there's a lot of variables that are coming into play here. So you take Bezos as an example, uh, David Letterman. Remember yeah. when, remember during yeah, that entire example. thing, right? So there's an example of yes. somebody who had some information about, you know, David's extracurricular activities. For context, he came on the air on his show and, and outed himself R- before somebody. Right, did. right. And, and people applauded that and said, right. you know, they said, well, look, you know, here's somebody who's coming, you know, uh, who's coming clean and, and coming out and talking about this. And people generally applauded that um, as an approach, but whether you're talking about, you know, Jeff Bezos or you're talking about David Letterman or other people like that, they have not only the, the means, that the, the dollars and the platform to do that. Uh, I think it may be a little bit different if you're do- talking about it in the context of a local level, a municipal politician or, or you know, a, a provincial politician that, that finds themselves in similar. Now, politics, to be to be honest with you, is a completely different, different. beast yeah. altogether, right? You're not entitled to yeah. be a politician yeah. and we yeah. can judge you based on your character. Right. And once you sign up for that, you're, you are in the public eye, right? As opposed to, you know, an individual who, um, you know, to use your example, if Devin Peacock is caught downtown doing unsavory things, uh, well, 
yeah, you're still a private citizen. You're not in the public eye. You didn't sign up for that, right? So there, there is a difference uh, See, of approach there. It's I would generally legally recommend against doing anything unsavory downtown Peacock. Again, too late. <laughs> too late. He's already done it. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, I think that, you know, if you go down to the local level, I think, you know, it could happen. And it started to happen a little while ago. Do you remember when that man was taken off the... Um, the plane against his will, and then they start to get into his into his private life. The one, the man who well, Chicago, wouldn't get yes, doctor? yes, yes. It started to ha- exactly the doctor, and then they delved into his private life and start to you know bring out all the stuff that was happening about him. And I think that that's really interesting that you know um, we were no longer going after public figures and we went after a private citizen um, after they were you know put out in the media. And I I just think that I think I agree with both of you guys that that it's you know, you have to have some type of standing in the community, um, have money, have something behind you, like a machine behind you, if you are caught or if you admit to something that that it like cushions you. Because if it's just somebody like me that I get caught doing something, then I can guarantee you I'm going to be looked down upon forever. And then even then, and, and I, you know, it might be go down to my children's level to like, she's the, my daughter would be the daughter of somebody who, you know, or the or my grandchildren. You know, to that yeah, point. Yeah, you even see right now. Do you see the media? Was it last night about Obama's daughter, and they're they're uh, they're coming at her because uh, it was a Malia or Rose, Oh, Rose, big right, deal! Right? Come on. And I, I and I know that's not it's that's different than the Basil's thing. But still, but, like, but still, what's the what's the news value? Like what what is the, where is exactly where's the like news value? Like we should just there? ignore. Like people should just be ignoring that sort of thing. We need to take a break for news. When we come back, we'll have more of the uh, Tuesday Roundtable. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We continue on with the uh, Roundtable, joined uh, today by Miriam Hamu, Ali Chabar, and Nathan Carancy. This is also uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs. How are you, Devo? <laughs> Devo. Diva. More I, like uh, it. Well, that's... Uh, Girl! Only off air. On the air, I'm a model citizen. Off the air, no one's allowed to look me in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> we have to refer to you in third person, yeah. even off air. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm really interested in uh, this next topic, and the next two kind of blend together, but I've been interested in this story out of Virginia with uh, the governor, Ralph, Ralph Northam, he, he's still the governor, which is kind of incredible based on uh, the way things uh, normally go and probably should have gone in this case. Uh, he has resisted calls to resign since the uh, blackface KKK picture controversy surfaced. We still don't know which one he was. He says he wasn't in either picture in his uh, medical school yearbook. Uh, but this leads to me to the question of, I, we, we can talk about Ralph Northam specifically, but how much should a politicians past impact their present day circumstances even going forward because you could look at Ralph Northam and say okay well this is like assuming he is one of these two pictures which I personally feel is likely that's bad to understate it but for the next 30 years that follow it if there's nothing in his way he acts that suggests that he would act like a or believe in like a person who would put on blackface or put on like a KKK hood well then doesn't that mean he's not the person who was pictured in that photograph? Well, so so this goes to the heart of um, the differences between your actions and your responses. I mean, if I accuse somebody or if somebody accused me of you know wearing blackface and here's a picture, 
I, I come out, the first thing I'd say, no, 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 that's not me. I never did that. There's a, his first response was, I'm not sure if it was me in the picture or not. But it was him. For, first of all, bad answer. Bad it, answer. Was, it was him. It, it either is or it's not. You don't it's forget him. things like and that. And even if it was him, let's, let's, like, this is the thing. Like, even if it was him, let's talk from that vantage point. So it's him. He's in the picture. Okay, where, where do we go now? If you look at the statistics of what ha- what's going on in Virginia, like, it was something like 60% of black people didn't want him to resign. Why? Because he got them health care. Why? Because he's... He's doing all of these things for the for for the black community. Um, the other thing moving forward from that is, and I think Rahm Emanuel said this, is that, you know what? Let's give him a chance. Why? Because from now he's got something to prove and he's going to be the voice. Like he's going to be a champion for black people because of this that's happened. Now, if you look, that's just the, that's just what's going on on the ground. But if you're talking about going into someone's past, we all have. We all have things we did maybe in the 90s that might not be like I was looking through a 90s uh, yearbook of mine and there were people that were for Halloween. They were dressed up as Arabs. There were people dressed up as as Indian people. There were people dressed up as Mexicans. So and that for the time that was fun and that was OK. But if I were to do that now, um, that would not look really good. So it's about progressing and it's about learning and it's about how what your response is now. What are you doing now? And what do you say about what happened back then? To, to a degree. So I agree with what Miriam's saying to a degree. I think there's a spectrum of bad behavior out there and not. And so if you're, depending on what end of the spectrum you're on, it, it, there's maybe a forgivable offense that you did. And there may be something that may be not forgivable. There was a, a candidate out in B.C., uh, I only remember his name because I think it's an office character, but uh, Jerry Bance, uh, uh, who uh, was caught, <laughs> he had Essentially urinated in a cup. Oh, right. Do you remember oh, that yeah, guy? Yeah, yeah, we yeah, for a few years back, right? Oh, and, right. And yes. so, so on. I mean, rule number one: you don't urinate in a cup, right? And, and and so he got busted on that. And then the Conservative Party said, "Well, we don't want this guy." Understandably, we don't want this guy running for us, just because I don't know politically if you can come back from urinating in a cup and getting getting caught on camera. But on the spectrum of, you know, deplorable behavior, if you take you know urinating on a cup and then uh, making racially um, uh, provocative or, or uh, comments, right, or sexual sexual misconduct in your past, mm-hmm. uh, not to diminish or devalue the the, the effect of you know, taking a you know what in a cup, but but uh, if you compare and contrast with somebody who comes out who has like Stephen King in the United States, a congressman King out of, out of New York, yeah. who's made these, he's essentially doing this equivalency in terms of uh, what's wrong with using the term white nationalism. Uh, and now that's a, now the thing is, that's not even a, like that was said 20 years ago. That's a relatively recent thing. Compare that, compare um, sexual allegations that were, uh, you know, keeping it close to home, Patrick Brown, right. That caused Patrick Brown to, to, to resign uh, even closer to home. Uh, like really close to home, local uh, candidates that have run for provincial office here in London that have had comments that were made online, right? Wow. So, yeah. so does that stuff? Does that stuff 
should that disqualify you from from? Yeah, I think sometimes the answer is yes, depending on what it but, is. And sometimes it so, isn't, right? So I, this is the thing that there's no way for you to redeem yourself. Like if you've committed an offense and you've been charged and there's a crime and whatever, like you go to jail for that. You serve your time. Where where and how do you serve your time when you've got a an offense that's on social media or something that you've done in your past? How do you prove it to people that you're not that person and that you've changed? Right? The, like the this though. is the, this is where I'm. So people do. People do evolve, like, and there, there's been yeah. an ev- evolution in time. It goes up over time, and so I always say, like, for somebody was really upset about some movie they saw and how you know horrible it was because of all of the lewd scenes and it was against women. I'm like, but for the time, it yeah, was actually normal, right? Sometimes, but, but it might not have been but like there are appropriate. Some but, things yeah. that transcend, like, like was blackface normal back like within recent time in the last 20 30 no, years is no, that is that an no, example no it wasn't so, but wearing a hat like wearing a mexican hat right. and calling that a halloween costume no, I, I, no, I, was okay i'm, I'm, I'm yeah. with you i'm with yeah. you on that but what i'm saying if we're talking about blackface or we're talking about Brett Kavanaugh at no point was it okay to assault a woman uh, no, under, under the guise of like something that's not his, right. right so so that's what i'm saying on the spectrum of behavior whether it's Kavanaugh or patrick brown or other people i mean right. to be proven in court right but there's some things that are so deplorable so egregious so beyond um you know redemption that yeah you should be disqualified if it comes out if you're somebody who to your point miriam in the 90s yeah you know has a yearbook photo where you're just an idiot, right? Something they that are. right. It's all idiocy. That's. I yeah. think you can recover. I, I, I. If I can just say something real quickly, I, I ran for office. Yeah. I had to go. I get it from the from the party's perspective. When I ran for office, they did a background check on me and every other candidate that was. Yeah. If you were incredible. a tree, what tree would you be? Yeah. Right. Right. It, well, it was. There was, like. Was I ever convicted of anything criminally? Yeah. They needed financial records. They needed. Yeah. Have I ever declared bankruptcy? They yeah. wanted to know. You know. Everything about everything. They want to know what color underwear I was wearing. And, and you know what? I don't blame them yep. because you're representing the party. Yep. And therefore, if there are any quote unquote skeletons in your closet, let's find out what they are. And then they have the they have the prerogative, the right to make a decision. So, so yeah, if it came out in my past that I was wearing blackface in, 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 in uh, high school, right? pissed in a cup right yeah i'm probably going to be disqualified right yeah. but uh but uh, uh, do you know where, but do you know where i'm coming from like where there's there's this there's a, like how much redemption how much room do you have for redemption like what where how do you redeem yourself well, from it, that it, so the the question here is a, it's a question of character i mean criminal activity we can all i, I suppose agree yeah. if you are a criminal and you haven't served your time or or you know you, it's shown that you've done an activity like that, you should be held accountable, whether you're a politician and especially if you're a politician. But what about but, drunk driving? No, everybody. But, but when we're talking about character, when we're talking about things like blackface, when we're talking about infidelity, yeah. when we're talking about these questions, these actions speak to one's character. Mm-hmm. And I remember a football coach used to always tell me that actions mark your name. You are judged based on your actions, plural, mm-hmm. in, 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 in time. Yep. And how you react to your certain, listen, every single one of us in this room, and I'll guarantee you many, if not most of the people listening at home, you've got some skeletons in your closet. You've done some things. I used to, you know, egg cars with my buddies and do all this kind of stuff. It speaks to, you, you have to understand it in context. You have to understand the person's character. Mm-hmm. And when there's something new and, and something that we did not know yet, we need to go to that person and ask them what they're you know, feelings on this mm-hmm. are. Ralph Northam, for example, to get back to the original point, this guy was petty fogging. He's all over the place. He was going to resign. He didn't resign. It was him. Now it wasn't him. 
that's not speaking to somebody who has very good character and a very good response to being governor. Now that's different because he was a, he is a politician Mm -hmm. versus an average citizen. You are not entitled in any way to be a politician. You're an elected officer. You should be held to a higher standard and we should be able to hold you accountable for anything we decide, whether it's your beliefs on an issue that we disagree or your actions in your past. I think we can all be reasonable to Miriam's point, understand in certain contexts. If you would have come out and said, yeah, that was a really big mistake. You know, I, I'm not going to make that judgment. Blackface is not something for me to adjudicate. Yeah, That's for it's the be people. Other people to exactly. Do. exactly. But the problem is to your point, we're, we're in a time now where character doesn't seem to matter as much yeah. anymore. But, but and it, we need to get back as a people to prioritizing right. character. We need to, well, I want to continue this conversation. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll have more of uh, the uh, roundtable on this issue. We'll get into a little bit more as well on the other side of the break. This is uh, Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPL. We continue on with the uh, roundtable. Uh, right now we're talking about how much you know a politician's past should impact their present-day circumstances and even their future hopes. So one of the cases, like these that were larger cases, one of the cases I thought of when I when I was thinking of this is, I remember a couple of years ago, there was a, uh, he was a, ran for the Liberals in London West, Nick Steinberg. Yeah. yeah. Was the, yeah. And the reason he lost wasn't because of this. Like he was a token candidate. And uh, the liberals were going to lose that one anyway. But during the course of the election, there were parts like there were some pictures on Facebook, you know, some frat boy stuff that came up that people, you know, he had to apologize for, which in the grand scheme of things, you know, he, he was a young guy when he ran. He's still young. He was even younger then. Like, yeah, what, what's uh, ultimately if there's a candidate who's a who would be a good candidate, who cares, you know, what frat, you know, stuff they did in their past. And so the flip side, I wonder, is because there's always people program for what they see is going on. And so I see someone being extremely focused and saying, as you know, a, you know, 10 years old, I want to be <laughs> prime minister yeah. of the country. And so little Devin Jr. Is, wants <laughs> to be prime minister uh, of the country. Yep. And so I am just such a squeaky clean little kid that I do nothing of any circum like any I couldn't trust you. I honest to God. Well, like so, I yeah, was somebody that's... like I just be like, oh God, he's not normal. If you are too squeaky clean. Too squeaky what? clean, then I but even that type of a person like not that, you know, uh, you know, blackface makes you a better uh gov- governor. That's not my argument. But your 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 you're not human. You're not make human. Make you a better person. Make yeah. you a better so judgment. Human. A better politician. So when you say that, I picture somebody like Mike Pence, who I think from the time <laughs> he was in diapers said, "I want to be the president <laughs> of the United States," and has probably done everything in calculation and in furtherance of that objective, right? And anyways, Ew. so so, uh, but I think it's a reflection of the individual themselves, and it's it's to to kind of hit on what Nathan was saying before. It's 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 more of a moral compass of the individual. Take take something like um, Al Franken as as an example, right? He shouldn't have resigned. Well, that's your opinion. Yeah, that may be my, my yeah, opinion, yeah, right? Yeah, but. Um, Al Franken, remember the picture that he had, I think he was overseas somewhere yeah. in Iraq and there was with the military service, yeah. right? And he, he was confronted with that. And then he made the decision to say, you know what? Yeah, that's uh, deplorable behavior. It's unbecoming. And I, and he resigned as Senator from Minnesota, I think it was. Yep. Yep. Now, 
you put that on the spectrum and then you see somebody else who may have the exact same, like, the exact same thing from their past and they say, ah, you know, it's not me or it wasn't or this or it's a different time and this and that. I think it's a, reflect- a reflection of the individual and their moral compass, their moral spectrum. The onus is on, the, especially when we're talking politics, I'm yeah. trying to interrupt, but when we're talking as politicians or, or about politicians, the onus is on that person to tell their story. And if they have a checkered past, if they have things mm-hmm. in their past behavior, it's up to them to answer for them. To answer for them is not to be held accountable in the rule of law. To answer for them is not to get a slap on the wrist. To answer for them is to have the courage and capacity to stand up in front of those you represent and say, here's what happened. Here's it in context. And here's, you know, here's my beliefs on it now. And this is, you know, who I am now. That's the onus. Al Franken, to use your example, decided that it was in his best interest to resign. I think going back, just as on a side note, I don't think he would have resigned. I think now that he's seen the kinds of things, the yeah. era that we're in, he would go, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not as bad as those guys. But anyways, that was his decision. Mm. For, for guys like Donald Trump, for guys like, uh, or people, uh, politicians that, are, that have this past, it's up to them to tell their story. I'll tell you right now. If we ever have a politician in this city or around here that says, you know what? I went through the opioid crisis. I was an addict. I lied. I cheated. I stealed. I I stole. I did everything in the book. Guess what? I recovered. Guess what? I'm a better person now. And that, it makes me a better representative Mm -hmm. for you. I'm going to vote for that person in a heartbeat. I'm not going to- Or at least not vote for them because of that. Exactly. They would have been held accountable. They answered for it. And just because the person next to them is squeaky, I'm going to say, I'm not voting for or against them because of that. But those are the kinds of things. What do we want as a society? Do we want people, if you make a mistake, to just go off in the gallows and not be a part of society? So no. So are we voting people based? Are we voting for people based on their personalities? And yeah, that's a that's a factor. But I would think that I want to vote for somebody based on their policies. And when I look at somebody like uh, what's his name, North. Yeah. Looking at his policies, they're great. And this is what I'm saying to you is that, you know, like beside the cult of personality, like when you go into personalities and cult of personality, I don't even I'm looking at him as like a box. Okay, what are the policies coming out of him? They're good. Okay, well, let's keep him in it. He might have been whatever back in those days, but. Well, then at that point. Right. Do, then, do, you, know, then, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do, but I'd I, rather I disagree. have good policies. And, I, you, sure, and that's fine. I, I think that character disagree. needs to matter more. Character, we're, we're witnessing, but that's we're a what part he, of. But that's what we, like, that's what kind of like muddles everything up. That's what dirties the waters. And that's why there's all of these things about, well, we have to have somebody who's good looking. We have to have somebody who's this and squeaky clean. Like, dude, I just want you to run the country properly. Well, then, That's then what I no, want. Then we can't hold Donald Trump accountable for the types of things he has done in his past. or in, Fine, but I can account, hold him accountable for, for the stuff that he's doing on the wall. Like, like, so okay. I just want to make sure it, that it, I understand what Miriam, what you're saying. So you're yeah. saying it, 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 it doesn't matter? Or like, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm understanding just, what this What I'm saying to you is that whether it matters, I think it has to matter. It does matter, but mm-hmm. it shouldn't matter. Do you know? No, I got to disagree I, I, with see, you on that. See, but so, this is so, where I'm the liberal in yeah. the in the group where I think that you know somebody might have a, a crappy past yeah. or uh, whatever but, but, it is. But, but that's not. But that, I'm I'm looking at policies. I'm looking at what's coming out of your policy. You can't out of you. separate the two. Well, like, I you, think you in, can. In, in some in some regards, I think you, you can. can. Well, I don't think you can because depending on what it is, if yeah. somebody if somebody was driving impaired and killed. 
a family of four when they were on the road, and then right. comes back and says two years later, "Oh, I'm a changed man. I did something right. My, my, uh, I, you know that that's not me. That was me then, not me now." Well, I think there's a requisite amount of time uh, that has to pass before you can even consider and consider that. So whether you're talking about impaired, whether you're talking about any other kind of egregious behavior, there has to be. Like, a- I don't care if somebody's cheated on their wife and then they're going to run for office. Like, I don't care. Well. I don't care. I disagree. I know. I know some people do agree. But this is where my liberalism comes in. I do not care if somebody's like in like I figure if that person's making good policy, that's their personal life. Leave it alone. There's a spectrum for all that yeah. sort of stuff. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll leave it to that because we're out of time. But I appreciate the conversation. I think it was a really good hour. And as always, when you're having fun, it goes by far too quickly. <laughs> we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll wrap up the show. This is Devin Peacock in for Mike Stubbs on 980 CFPO. My thanks to Jason Leader, to Taylor Owen, Graham Larkin, Josh Morgan, Miriam Hamu, Ali Chabar, Nathan Carancy. Thanks to Christian Davino for his work in the program. Today's his last day with us going to an internship at Global News Toronto. No, know he'll do well, but uh, thanks for all your work here in London. Uh, today's audio gem is from ABC 23 in Bakersfield, California. One of the anchors had his voice changed mid-sentence. That started a laughing fit. Have a great day. I'll be back with you tomorrow in 22 hours. The uh, CSUB runners, <laughs> runner, runners were on the, what was that? <laughs> Hold on a sec. <laughs> the um, CSUB runners on the court last night.